The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Welcome back to the Brandon Peters Show and our continued adventures through Tim Burton's big retrospective. Tim Burton. As always with me on this uh, quest, Scott Mendelson from The Rap. <gasps> the Rap. The Rap. <laughs> We've known this for a while. We know this before he's dropped. So, But in times of us recording now, it's just happened but we're late into this so i'm just started my fourth week and i actually i think the first two or three of these it was when i was still at forbes so i had to go well when we were recording not when yes yes when we were recording these so i sort of very quickly did i you know we fixed up the whole where could we find your work yes a lot of good material on the editing floor nine years of stuff at the Forbes you're still allowed to read so you know mm-hmm. there you go all right and joining us for this episode i'm very excited to return to the show from io9 one of our favorites here sabina graves hey everyone so excited to be here to talk about tim burden yes definitely and i i brought you on because we have like in your previous guest spots here we've kind of hinted toward you having liking tim burton stuff and things but where do you sit with tim burton like as a whole like your introduction to him because you're you're younger than me by a little bit but so your intro would have probably been different but just to catch people up here on episode six for you coming in i think my intro to tim burton was pretty much a lot of his early work so like beetlejuice batman i I didn't see peewee until i was much older but I very quickly became a fan, especially because of the the Beetlejuice animated series and, oh, you know, just that realm of things that my parents didn't mind showing to a child. And he fell into that category. So I, I definitely became a, a big film fan because of Tim Burton. Gotcha. Definitely. Awesome. Yeah. And I, that's the thing we were talking about. Like it became like he was this weird thing that became like, yeah, it's dark stuff that's OK to show to kids. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like Nightmare Before Christmas, Mm Edward Scissorhands. Like that was very fundamental for me (laughs) in the early 90s. Definitely excellent. Uh, Jessica? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's, I was just, you know, we've discussed a lot in the earlier episodes that to a certain extent for an entire generation and those slightly older than younger than that generation, Tim Burton was had such a distinctive filmography that he sort of became the first example of film school in a box for children mm-hmm. yeah you know sort of explaining auteur theory and exclaim ex- explaining the nitty-gritty of of you know filmmaking and the, the you know the widgets involved you know that's production design that's why that tree looks alive it's always a danny elfman score because they work together well etc you know it's he's an outcast who's trying to fit in or doesn't want to fit in because that's theme you mm-hmm. know so stuff like that you know for people that were obviously too young to you know 
dissect, you know, 80s and 90s Scorsese pictures. When I saw the last temptation of Christ, what I would say. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, he was the the first of that. It's it's funny that you mentioned the whole, you know, scary stuff that's family friendly, because obviously for the first act of his career, he was sort of owing, you know, sort of on a tightrope in terms of what he could get away with and what was considered commercial. And at least one of the films we're going to talk about tonight was sort of like a weird full circle moment Mm -hmm. in which the generation of kids that grew up with, you know, Beetlejuice, Pee Wee, Edward Scissorhands, Nightmare for Christmas, Batman Returns, were now old enough to be taking their kids to the newest Tim Burton, PG but scary fantasy picture. Right. Totally. Totally. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, so the pictures we'll be talking about tonight are uh, 2007's Sweeney Todd colon the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, 2010's Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows from 2012, and also from 2012, Frankenweenie. So he has another two uh, live action and animated film in the same year again. Uh, but first, we're stop off. He directed a music video from The Killers called Bones. Stars Devin Aoki, Michael Steger, and the killers themselves. Um, the, the the tagline on here that I got from IMDb is a couple's love that feels each other's bone. So this one just very it's it's a couple at a drive-in, uh, watching like a Ray Harryhausen movie, and they go to a beach and stuff, and they take off their clothes, and there's just bones, and it's running around and doing normal lovey-dovey stuff as like skeletons. That's it's pretty basic and stuff, but what'd you guys think of this? And where where's the Tim Burton touch in it? Sabina, you first. So that came out in my prime hot topic years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and being a huge fan of the killers, I love Sam's Town. I thought that was a great uh sophomore album for them. And kind of getting that vibe of we're just gonna go all out with, you know this music and like becoming friends with Tim Burton. I believe that like they had found out Tim was a fan and had jumped at the chance of directing this video because he was like, yeah, let's go, let's do this. So I really love the motifs of like that was sort of like retro drive-in movie theater meets just, just weird like romance and definitely was up my alley growing up i think i was like probably with like my first boyfriend when that came out and it was like oh we love tim burton and we love the killer so it was all that (laughs) awesome scott i was 32 (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i i'll be honest i had not seen this video until the preparation for this podcast same and (laughs) This is not a criticism, but it feels almost like a spoof of what if Tim Burton directed a music video, right? And okay. there's obviously a lot of gothic imagery, the whole you know skeletons playing music, though even that's kind of like that one Grateful Dead video that was like the only Grateful Dead video that ever played on MTV. It's called like I Will Get By or something. Touch of Gray. Thank you. <laughs> but that is um, the, the chorus. I will get yeah. by. Yeah. <laughs> I will get by. 
and you know, I saw that video as a, at a very young age before I knew the Grateful Dead was, and it was, it was slightly surplus when I realized that they had this this obsessive fandom. It's like these guys, I mean, they're fine, but okay. Yeah, but as for this video, yeah, it's fine. It's entertaining. It's two minutes long. <laughs> you know, the 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 there's clips from Lolita. There's clips from Creature of the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Again, it's very. I don't want to say it's self satirical because that's too. I don't think it's that intentional. It's just him having fun and making a music video. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the mo- I mean, the money's all in the effects, so you kind of can't do a whole lot setting-wise and scenario-wise, so you got to have fun with the stop-motion bones, which is a nice Harryhausen tribute. Um, but I also, like, thought-provoking-wise, I don't know why I was getting it out of this little silly music video, but I was sitting here being like, man, that's really what we are, isn't it? We're just, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> skeletal things. And we just, you know, we have a dressing of like, you know, flesh over them. But really, when you break it down, we look silly like that. And can <laughs> just, just, you know, we crunch. never get to meet our bones self. Right. Yes. You know, so it's very, except that, you know, apparently our significant others can see right through us and, you know. Yeah. Each other's bones. <laughs> right. So I saw something a little deeper. I don't know what it struck me. Maybe it was the right time of day that I watched it and I was in a mood like that. Maybe it's the Sony Pictures Classics Collection movies I've been going through that have been making me look a little deep into things. But yeah, so I got a little little bit of deep stuff. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if it's intending to make me think this, but good job if it was, if, you know, there was any sort of thing. But yeah, um, it's a... I will totally like cop it too. It was a product of that Hot Topic era where like, all the branded stuff in like the really gothic hot topics with like the the brick archways that you would enter mm-hmm. into was all nightmare before christmas stuff and then my chemical romance and the killers band shirts so definitely like it was that like let's let's meet these two things in the mainstream and kind of like i, I would say like it was kind of like the origin of that era where a lot of like film stuff started to become mainstream pop culture, like just like the burgeoning of like that geek sort of like fandom yeah. takeover. Well, so. I mean, hot topic was evolving at that point too. Like in like, cause my hot topic was like, we got that Tim Burton, like poetry book and the little art. And then we had like incense candles. There's an S and M section in the back. And then like, black band t-shirts that was just all over the wall that's pretty much what hot topic was for me at the time the early days but then it's it's about now it's just like a funko pop store just like everything else it's just darker inside <laughs> is what they've kind of become but yep yeah, yeah definitely a nice little staple here and it's cool to see him break off do music videos we'll have another one of his music videos in the next episode if you're like wait he did two keller's episodes or two keller's music videos that's coming in next week's episode as well. All right. Our first film is Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Once there was a time when a man ruled without mercy. Where's my wife? She's gone. And he's got your daughter. These are desperate times and desperate measures are called for. This Christmas, Sweeney is coming and justice will be served. How about a shave? Johnny Depp. In a film by Tim Burton. Oh. Sweeney Todd, rated R. He, of course, directs. Uh, written by John Logan and Christopher Bond on a musical by Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler, starring Johnny Depp. 
Helena Bonham Carter, Alan Rickman, Timothy Spall, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jamie Campbell Bauer, Laura Michelle Kelly, Jan Weisner, and Ed Sanders. Saunders Sanders. Uh, the the legend. It's a uh, the legendary tale of a barber who returns from wrongful imprisonment to 1840s London, bent on revenge for the rape and death of his wife, and resumes his trade while forming a sinister partnership with his fellow tenant, Mrs. Lovett. Scott, this is the third musical in a row for Tim Burton. Uh, in yeah. our little series here, <laughs> we had he did three Christmas movies in a row, and now he's done three musicals. Uh, going back. Corpse Bride, and before Corpse Bride was Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. So here we are. And again, another perfect match for Burton plus the material. In my in my mind, this was a dream project for him, wanting to do it since the 80s. Then Sam Mendes was supposed to do this and dropped off, and Tim Burton stepped right on in. So uh, let's, let's go around here, just like Sabina. Tell us about Sweeney Todd. Wow, so... I think this came out either I was just out of high school. I'm bad with dates. What what was the year again for this? 2000, uh, 2007. Wow. I was in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely deep in that hot topic phase of being a golf kid and also a theater kid. So this was definitely boom. Boom. Like. I remember seeing it opening night and being very into the soundtrack and then. You know, I think my high school was like, I think I'd seen like a high school production of it before, um, <laughs> which is wild. Um, and, you know, definitely a big fan of all of the um, weird actor mainstays mentioned. So I, I was ready for this movie and mm-hmm. um, very into it. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny. I think my real. Only before this movie, my true experience with Sweeney Todd was the movie Jersey Girl. That was uh, <laughs> first heard of Sweeney Todd. Uh, ben Affleck's uh, daughter in it is obsessed with Sweeney Todd, and they put on a little production of it for the talent show, which <laughs> shows that they do the throat slicing scene. It's like, what? Oh, okay. And it's a funny bit in a crummy kind of a movie that's trying. I will always give Jersey Girl that, but um, Scott Sweeney Todd. Yeah, I mean, this is a project as you mentioned. He's been trying to do it for as long as I could remember at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a music instructor in elementary school that was, you know, trying to get me more interested than I otherwise was by talking about this particular thing, and you know, I had known that. Burton was attached to it. So that, of course, got my interest. And of course, it was fun when you're in elementary school being, you know, when they're talking about a musical with, you know, cannibalism and and murder. It's like, oh, that's nice. I like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I had seen a video of the stage recording. I think it was the one with Angela Lansbury. Lansbury. Mm -hmm. Um, I had seen a stage version of it in 2005. We went, I took my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, in Little Tokyo. So it was an all Asian cast. Oh, okay. um, but then, yeah, I mean, when we saw the film on our honeymoon, actually, because we got married just before Christmas 2007. And um, that was actually one of two movies. We, we spent the week at Disney World. So there was some downtime. I love that. 
Well, you know, without filling up too much of this with random anecdotes, we were planning our honeymoon and we're looking at normal places like going to Tahiti or whatever. And it's like something I noticed is like the more expensive the hotel, the bigger the TV screen. It's like, there's nothing to do in any of these places, is there? He's <laughs> like, no, like, yeah, Wendy, you're right. Let's just go to Disney World. And so we spent the week there doing stuff. Um, but anyway, um, I like the film quite a bit. Uh, it is a slightly slimmed down and condensed version of the original show. I think without ignoring the politics, because it doesn't, I think it certainly emphasizes the personal over the political. And yes, I know the political is personal, blah, 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 yeah. But in terms of the film, I think it emphasizes the personal over the political. Um, or maybe just Burton assumes that if you're showing up for Sweetie Todd, you already get it. Johnny Depp is very good in this picture. I think he sings as well as necessary. And everyone else is... You know, the one performance I thought, not so much bad, but Alan Rickman plays Judge Turpin. And he's very good, but he played a version of Judge Turpin in a movie called Perfume, the story of oh, yeah, 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 yeah. About two years earlier. And I think he's better in that film, weirdly enough. It's anecdote. Scott and I went to that to see uh, Tom Tickber do a Q&A that he didn't show up for. <laughs> I forgot that. Didn't there it? were two lines that night. There was uh, Pan's Labyrinth with Guillermo del Toro, who showed up, and Perfume with Tom Tickburn. We went for Perfume. He didn't show up. But we did make up for it uh, with Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, uh, with Guillermo del Toro. The day he was announced yes. as the director of The Hobbit and said, mm-hmm. I cannot answer any questions about that this time. And guess what? He never would have to. It turned out to be very true. It turned out to be very true. So... <laughs> But um, so we made up for it there. But uh, yeah, you're right about him in Perfume. That was where he needed to be here. And maybe it's just, you know, it's the kind of role they can almost play in his sleep. So he kind of did. Right. Um, Well, so you play it like this is one kind of the thing I think about this movie where in terms of maybe how it was kind of taken in a general sense when it came to like bigger awards and like this movie, like Sweeney Todd plus Tim Burton. Okay, I kind of can see how that's going to be. You see the trailer, you're like okay, that's gonna, it. Kind of just plays. It's it's an excellent movie to me, but like I can see it playing as expected to a lot of people. Yes, without any extra flair. Um, but I also think it's imp- like Johnny Depp does a lot better than singing and stuff than you'd anticipate. Uh, this is the first time it, it, Helena Bonham Carter is in a lot of his movies, but this is I feel like this is the first time he gave her like, let's just showcase the hell out of you, like. I feel like she's always in like little fun supporting roles and this gives her like the meatiest part he's given to her. Yeah, she's fairly. And and as a, you are absolutely correct in terms of the film feels and plays exactly as you'd think of, Oh, Tim Burton's doing Sweetie Todd. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said in a vacuum, it's a very good picture. And I think if a lot of other filmmakers had made this film, of this quality, it would have been seen as a revelation either because of their batting average or because this is the kind of film that, you know, if Ron Howard had made this, I, I like Ron Howard as a filmmaker, his naivety and idiocy in terms of hillbilly elegy notwithstanding, what you think was going to happen, Ron? For that sake, we call him Ronald. Scare- <laughs> Stereotypically speaking, you know, Ron <laughs> Howard making a film like Sweetie Todd would have been, you know, something of a revelation because of, of, you know, fair or not, the reputation is a very respectable, stayed, relatively, I don't want to say featureless because I'm not fair. You know, his, his altruism is that, you know, he just gets the job done. 
and in a in a a gets the job done in a very classic yes uh sense of the word like he he knows his lens like he he's you you're probably uh, i don't want to diss any new filmmakers but he's got he comes from a background and a study that like he knows more about capturing in the frame and stuff within a generic sense yes things than just somebody comes from indie world not maybe knowing a lot of camera stuff rather than just yeah hey, we fit people on a screen ron howard can make it a little more and you know, to be fair he does occasionally make unconventional films like mm-hmm. the missing or i think i referred to as the rescue and that was a mistake so yeah. the missing and ransom that are very violent action thrillers um, so he is, you know, he can't do that when he wants to. Right. And hell, I mean, Ed TV is the most prescient, one of the most prescient movies of the 1990s. Yeah. Um, that we didn't think at the time. No, we all thought Truman Show was the one. And obviously, mm-hmm. Truman Show was a better movie, but anyway, this isn't a Ron Howard. But movie. yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Angels oh, and Demons yeah. rocks. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go with the, the, uh, 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 what was it? Uh, the one with, the racing one from recently. I like that oh, one. Rush. That's Rush. terrific. Yeah, that's that one's yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't mean to bag on him as sort of a workman, you know, he's probably an he's an A plus workman workman like director, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, I mean, the way that he was able to capture this like unconsciously horny movie in the Grinch was fantastic. <laughs> I mean um Jim Carrey and um I'm blanking on her name here. Christine Marinsky. Yes. No. Like I mean, the energy right. in that I film think that's and the, the restraint worst that he has lifetime, from it going over the edge is amazing. Gotcha. Um, but anyway, back to Burton. You know, this this you know, if the film has a flaw, it's that it's very much what you'd expect from Tim Burton doing Sweetie Todd without a lot of curveballs. And after 15 years of development and 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 also other portions of that story being used elsewhere i mean by the time sweeney todd the movie comes out we've seen the character of turpin in you know films like schindler's list or the hunchback of notre dame mm-hmm. so you know the you know it's almost gets john cartered so to speak you know which is the mm-hmm. expression that i always use when something that ins- was inspired a gajillion other pieces of art you finally get an adaptation of it and it just feels almost derivative of um the films that ripped it off initially it's like, no, it came before Avatar. Yeah, but Avatar was in theaters first. So, yeah. Um, that being said, you know, and the reason I asked about if you would, you know, there was a mild, you know, online controversy when it came out that I guess, A, the previews seemed to disguise the fact that it was a musical, which maybe. And B, apparently there were a lot of people that showed up on opening weekend over Christmas and were not aware that it was a musical and were, you know, displeased. But they didn't put the sign up that said this this motion picture may include songs. And <laughs> Warding the barbers and cannibal. Yeah, it's not it's not the cannibalism or, or the, the throat yeah. slashing. It's the song. It's the song. Warding the barbers sing. And they were oh. also really catchy, kind of really good. Warning: Do not eat the meat pies. Just trust us. I remember the controversy the at pies. least for me watching it. As a part of being in the theater crowd, I've, I've always been more of a film person than a theater person. So mm-hmm. I really understood the intention of casting actors who could be the people in it uh, and, and and like, you know, um, provide like the emotion, 
that these characters go through, like with their arcs versus picking classically trained singers, which was a really big sticking point for many Mm -hmm. that like, oh, you didn't pick people who could sing. Um, But then you get into, you know, like how each medium requires different things, you know, like I think for singing, it's definitely that vocal range um, is more important on stage not saying that it's not important in a film because it is we've seen we have right. seen the likes of beauty and the beast live action uh <laughs> oh, right. and well, you know, but butler I, is fan of the opera is sort of the ultimate example of what the hell were you thinking yeah <laughs> well one thing i think with to sabina's point too that i not that not that people on the stage don't do this, but like I feel like within this film, like they, I feel like it's the character singing rather than the actor singing, right? Um, right. And I feel like yeah. the film actors kind of would approach it and bring more rather than trying to. Well, I need to show stop at all costs with my number, even though probably that's probably unfair. But they're two different mediums trying to do two different kind of different things. Like even though they're both musicals, the film musical is a lot different, and I think for the intensive purposes you need it to be like johnny depp sounding when he sings even for better or for worse it needs to remind you that it's johnny depp it's what it's worth the biggest grossing live action musical that isn't a one of those disney remakes of late is mama mia which made mm-hmm. 609 million dollars worldwide how it's much did iron man make worldwide scott 585 exactly how much did Hancock make? Six twenty-five. Why don't Kung we have twenty-five? Six thirty. We don't. We have twenty-five ABBA films. Listen, <laughs> but anyway, I it's it's a perfectly them. delightful film. But most of the adults in that cast sing worse than me. Mm. So sometimes it doesn't matter. Pierce Brosnan certainly tries. <laughs> to be fair, I think the camera betrays him in that one. It's the extreme close-ups when he's, you know overly mouthing himself but i'll throw right. out another hot take i think russell crowe and lamez rob is just fine it's Ooh. weird and unconventional but i enjoy watching him do it okay oh. that's your take I think bizarrely though um in the live action cinderella we didn't have lily james sing but she can sing and they she actually did record a dream is a wish your heart makes oh. And it's incredible. It's on Spotify, at least. And also Helena Bonham Carter's Bippity Boppity Boo is on there as well, which I thought okay. was great as well. She is singing, not to sing a showstopper, but singing as the character this song. Um, and ironically, Lily James is in the second Mamma Mia movie. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All the which I think it's yes. a better film than the first oh, one. Yeah. In yeah. Almost every way. Oh, yeah. It's that's um, really that's a, that's the I did not expect this. <laughs> yeah. Very good sequel here. Yeah. Um, um, and even Dio, Cinderella is awesome. That was the one that gave one of the ones along with Pete's Dragon that gave me false hope that these remakes would be good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, uh, Sweeney Todd, uh, we haven't talked about like Sasha Baron Cohen. Speaking of actors singing, he's a he's a this was like during his like little rise here. He was a you know, he had the he had uh, Borat and then uh. Talladega Nights, and then the, like he was taking over the world, and he was going to play Freddie Mercury in what became Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody. Which this movie made me really excited for. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, that's you know, like it was like he works, and he's not like the typical choice, and that's what you want out of that. And 
Yeah, that movie. Went I also through like that it's of... a small part. So he just came, he did his business, and he left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm not the first one that made this joke, so I cannot take credit for it. But right. I remember in 2019, people were saying, gosh, it'd be really funny if Josh Baron Cohen ends up playing Freddie Mercury in Rocket Man. Rocket Man. <laughs> the Elton John biopic. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that would have been funny. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, yeah, the movie, like, I, I think it looks great. It's, it's like a, is this, I don't know. Do you think it's, uh, we're in the end of this, we, we have a decade here that, uh, what would start with Play of the Apes and it ends here. Is this his best of the decade of this, this segment or? Where are we at? I think by default. By I, default, no, would you say no. big, big, big? No, big fish. fish big fish big is fish. awesome. Big fish is over, incredible. Over, over, Sweeney. That being said, we have Big Fish and Sweeney Todd, which again, for a different filmmaker's filmography, would be pretty high up there. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, many other filmmakers would not be on the defensive in the way that Burton has been for 15, 20 years, simply because they made Big Fish and uh, Sweeney Todd. Yeah. And and as we were, you know, we've been talking about this to just we're we're not we didn't do this retrospective to prove it, but we just wanted to shine light on his batting average is rather high, regardless of whether you still pay attention to him or not, because through this decade where I think the only misfire is Planet of the Apes. Yeah, because one like there's Big Fish, there's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is better. It's fine. It's it's not yeah. bad. And then Corpse Bride, easily likable. And um yeah, now we're here. So pretty good still. And it'd be firing on all cylinders from now on. <laughs> Definitely. Especially because these two movies specifically just show the range yeah. of his work, you know, like two different spectrums yeah. of yeah. his like wildly imaginative sides that I think kind of also set the stage for some of the other movies we're going to talk to talk right. about today right. yeah. oh, like we're gonna bring another... him on and talk to them <laughs> yeah we are yes. yeah i think he's one of the you know because he's been around for so long and he's had a pretty relatively regular output you know he's not terrence malick where he disappears for 15 or james cameron uh, you know mm-hmm. disappears under, underneath the sea for 10 years or 15 years but anyway you know so like you know, you know spielberg's 2000 era run would be just freaking amazing for almost any other director on earth yeah, because it's not Indiana Jones and Jaws and, you know, Jurassic No, it's fucking Park. Munich, which rules. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. That, you know, it's, 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 again, you know, wow, wow, poor Spielberg. But nonetheless, there, you know, it's, 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 I remember something Roger Ebert said when he was discussing Cape Fear, a film that he did not love. He said that if, you know, pretty much any other, almost any other director, would you know basically be a highlight to make a good a film as good as Cape Fear, but for Scorsese, it almost felt like a step down to him. Yeah, um, and I think there is a lot of that when you're dealing with these very distinctive auteurs. That you know, and Sweeney Todd's a good example. Again, you know, for a, a gajillion other directors you could think of, it would be mind blowing if they pulled this off. I mean, can you imagine Brett Ratner, who off-screen behavior notwithstanding, whose films I don't hate, you know, pulling you know making this film, and. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 anyway, I'm rambling. I will. Yes. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> get 150 I mean, on a 50 budget. It's fine, but nobody, yeah, yeah. it wasn't yeah. a blowout yet. No, but it was, it was an Oscar hopeful, Uh, but it, it was, was, but here's the thing. It was a stacked year 
It was that oh, No God, Country yes. for Old Men year. There will be blood, like Michael Clayton. There was so much going on. It wound up with a uh, art direction, uh, which it won, uh, costume design nomination, and uh, Johnny Depp for Best Actor, uh, which he lost to Daniel Day Lewis for There Will Be Blood. Um, but with that one. I mean, <laughs> Juno's this year, Atonement, like it's a brutal it's, year this is one of the best years for oscar movies and you know a lot of people it's it, it's funny like the the complaint um about you know the oscar's not nominating things people see i you know i don't remember people a lot of people see them people used to see them or you know what maybe i should see those wild concept <laughs> it might be a recommendation list for you it might be a wreck. Sorry. Anyways, uh, but yeah. So I mean, this while this one looks like, oh yeah, I could have had. Eh, it's it's a it's a stacked year with uh, better, lot some better films in my eyes to it. Um, but it was another try for Burton at like, oh, this might be a good push, but just way too much competition. <laughs> way, way too much competition. Like heck, you could have thrown Casino Royale in for that year because that movie ruled. Previous year. Uh, previous. Oh, was it? 2006? Oh, 2006. Yeah, that was 2006. All right. But you, but I don't disagree. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, we'll move on now to um, one of his biggest films of all time, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Once you go down the rabbit hole, a world of wonder awaits in IMAX 3D. Alice, you're back. Oh, what the hell? Prepare for an IMAX 3D experience beyond wonder. Who will step forth to be champion? That would be I. Oh, no. I'm fine. Alice in Wonderland. Rated PG and IMAX 3D. Visit IMAX.com for showtimes and listings. Which was written by Linda Wolverton from the books Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Sorry, Mia. Is it Wasikowska? Wasikowska? Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, Johnny Depp, Anne Hathaway, Crispin Glover, Matt Lucas, Michael Sheen, Stephen Fry, Alan Rickman, Barbara Windows, Paul Whitehouse, Timothy Spall, and Martin Soskis. 19-year-old Alice returns to the magical world from her childhood adventures where she reunites with her old friends and learns of her true destiny to the to end the Red Queen's Reign of Terror. This is the first of a two-film 3D deal Burton had with Disney. The other will be uh, the remake of Frank and Weenie, which we will talk about later in this episode. This this was a juggernaut of a movie before like everything was making a billion dollars. This was um, the fifth film to make... Wait, I'm sorry. That's not correct. It was the sixth film to make a billion dollars. Off by one, Scott. Shame on you. So... Fuck you, I, name the other four. Number five. <laughs> I, w- I want to open up with this. Like, I think this is the last time people got excited about Johnny Depp in a Burton movie. Yes. Because, oh, Johnny Depp playing the Mad Hatter. <gasps> oh, yes. Johnny Depp playing Willy Walker. Yes. Oh, sweetie, talk with Johnny Depp. Yes. I think. Uh, when we get to our next film, that's uh, the line got drawn there. But this is, I think, the last time there was excitement for Johnny Depp in a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, and um, you know, it's 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 
commercially speaking, this was a fascinating situation. First of all, it was just on the cusp of the era where films this big and this large, A, being released in March, B, being released at all, and C, having a female lead, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately was still somewhat of a rare thing in 2010. And yes, it was the first big 3D film after Avatar. That obviously helped. Um, and you had a, again, you had a stacked cast and, you know, it's star plus concept. You had Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter. You had Anna Hathaway as the White Queen. You had Crispin, oh, I'm kidding. I mean, I love Crispin Glover, but he doesn't put butts in I think sense. Helena Bottom um, Carter at this yeah. point. And again, as an ensemble, I think they movie, all yeah. helped. You yeah. even had Alan Rickman reprising his role from Dogma. Um, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> um and, you know, he does the same thing right toward the end where he gives this really sweet and, and you know, in a non-patronizing way, empowering, you know, speech to motivate the heroine to do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my favorite scene in Dogma and by default, it's my favorite scene in this film. Gotcha. Um, I did rewatch it today, by the way, because yeah. I hadn't seen it since theaters. Um, it looks better without the 3D. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Um, I, I my biggest problem oh. with the film that I'm sorry I interrupted you. Carry no, on. I I thought you were done. I no no I my biggest on. problem with the film is the same as it's it's that it's very slow. Mm-hmm. It's very stilted in terms of its pacing, and the film sets up the idea of Alice being forced into a marriage. You know, very Jane Austen type you know politics. Which one, you know, whether I like each individual film or not, I do like that Linda Wolverton for a time was using these big budget Disney vehicles to tell, I would argue, very angry feminist parables. Mm-hmm. You know, films that were very aware of the way in which society fucked over women then and now. That's, you know, Maleficent, uh, Alice, uh, the other one, Through the Looking Glass. Um, but you know, it's one of those I you know like what I like what the movie's about more than I like how it's about it. But you have this notion where she is being told what to do at every step of her life and needs to break free, live her own life. And then she ends up in Underland. And what happens? Everyone there tells her, you have to do this, 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 this. And it's not to the very end of the movie, you know, when the movie is over, that she's able to make even something resembling, an, you know, an, an individual choice for her own destiny. And definitely. Um, but you know, ironically, as much as people not incorrectly bagged on Burton as a director because the film did not get good reviews, I think it's pretty well directed. I think again, I think the 3D hurt it visually. Uh, I was surprised I, yeah, the visual definitely. effects visual effects hold up yeah. better than I thought. Uh, um, it's early effects work; it's still impressive. But th- there were some shots where the depth and lighting weren't quite mastered, where it looks just like someone standing in front of a green screen. But for the most part, this is early on in a lot of that tech, and it holds up. But like uh, the, some of the CG mocap characters and stuff look really good for. And you know, I, I like that Johnny Depp is again. He's yes, he's wearing a goofy hat, and yes, he's wearing silly makeup, but he's giving a real performance. He's making choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I'm not going to retroactively say it's a good film because it's still not for. No, it definitely feels like I agree with Scott. Like it just gets very muddled. I'm a big Beauty and the Beast fan. And, you know, I think that um, I haven't seen a Linda Wolverton written film that is as just 
pure as that one, at least doesn't feel as messed with um, as films like Alice and Through the Looking Glass and Maleficent were kind of like you get a little bit of the sense that there was definitely some interference in that regard um, where, you know, certain things are probably not leaned into um, for various reasons of that time. And then you had all these visuals. I think the visuals were very overly stimulating, um, but I do think that a lot of the character performances were really great. So it's just like this wild, incredibly just, I mean, it's a, it's Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what other movie could really pull that off? I just remember it also being becoming a big part of the zeitgeist. I think that was literally the height of the like hot topic becoming a, a fandom playground days where they were like, we're going to go all in on you're going to buy this. You're going to buy the Mad Hatter's hat. We have all the the Alice in Wonderland costumes and the shirts and the makeup and everything was just like it kind of began to lean into that like overly consumerist sort of spectacle introducing bright and colorful things into hot topic yes yeah (laughs) very much so like all the fairy stuff started you know becoming big that's i think that was probably the way in for all the disney merch into hot topic because after that that's when you got all of like like more so than because i know they had nightmare but then it was because they had nightmare film shirts the tarantino shirts and then all of a sudden alice in wonderland happened and then the gateway yeah. gateway, which I've always been a fan of both, but this, but kind of like at that point, I think I was just like overly saturated with, with Tim Burton that like, it kind of was, you know, started to, and it makes sense with the timing, like with dark shadows where everyone, all of a sudden everything was like, this is too much. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, me for what it's worth, I'm, I'm going to butcher this name. So I apologize. Mia was, who is terrific in this very challenging role and that she Mm -hmm. has to be the rock at the center of the story around all these you know she's seinfeld and seinfeld and nobody's favorite character on that show is seinfeld and you know what do you mean (laughs) um and obviously she's done a lot of very good work elsewhere over the last decade or so. I'm still very fond of uh Stoker was great. Thank you, Stoker. Yes. And uh, she, exactly Crimson Crimson of. Peak, uh, a very yeah. underappreciated film, but yeah. yeah. Yes, it was, Scott. Scott hates all hammer and amicus. <laughs> my issue with that <laughs> why didn't they jump scare me? All the No, no, I no. Wanted. My issue is that you know Guillermo del Toro is running around screaming, it's a romance, it's not a horror film, it's a romance. Like, look, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, they say they're gonna kill her. I felt terrible for her the entire time. She's basically like a sex trafficking victim. I kept wanting her to break free and run away. Yeah, that's but anyway. Point. anyway. No, I, I didn't, you know, it's funny. I did I got married the weekend this came out. So I didn't get to go see it in the theater that weekend. Um, Is that just a thing we all get married during opening weekends of Tim Burton movies? Tim Burton movie, yeah. 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 <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm wondering if there was one when I got married. That was the summer of 2017? No. no. Oh, no. I'm not in the club. No. Uh, you're uh, right between, you could have rented Miss Peregrine's peculiar whatevers we'll talk about next week. Miss Peregrine's, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> So yeah, revisit this. Like, there's plenty to appreciate here. I love Alice in Wonderland. The Disney cartoon was one of my favorites. Uh, So like, there's it's easy for me to just like softly enjoy a lot of this, but it's tedious and it takes for. And then it has to like it has to have the Jabberwock thing at the end. 
that feels like we need it. We need to see some big CG thing die. The third act CG stew. <laughs> yeah, like we need it. We need some something. We just can't, um, you know. So this was one of the first, at least in modern times, of something that uh, an acquaintance of mine from Korea Todd wrote an essay called basically about the epification of pop culture. The mm-hmm. idea that they were taking these non-action stories and turning them into, you know over-the-top action-adventure spectacles. And this was not the first one to do that. I, I might argue The Mummy was the first of its kind, you know, at least back in the day, mm-hmm. unless you want to, you know, count, uh, you know, the Santa Claus movie the Sockland's made in 1985. It's basically Superman, but with Santa Claus. Yeah. Um, but, like, the Brothers Grimm and, like, yeah. Snow White and the Huntsman. But th- yeah. this one That's is a- definitely, yeah, Snow White the Husband was a couple years after this. It was probably inspired by this film's success. Um but that yes, it's it's taking the story that's absolutely not an action adventure story, and it's doing the, and it was contrived even then, but now even more so, where it's empowering because she has a weapon and kills something. Yeah. Um, and that might be one reason I like the sequel better because it just it plays a different game. Yeah. Um, that one also I think is much better in the first two acts than it is the third act. But, mm-hmm. Well. Um. I, but no, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say of of the like, I have a thing for like, I've clicked like Alice in Wonderland film adaptations and stuff like that. And this is not one I ever I like. This is the first time I've watched it in a long time. I, I don't even know if my kids watch this one very often, but like there's some there's some fun stuff with Alice in Wonderland that um like there's some silent ones that are like really creepy <laughs> just to watch to see what they put together. Uh, and such as some uh, like some wonderful like British television adaptations and stuff. But this this one goes for it, it has some things, but it's one of the more like uh, boring kind of ones uh, with it, even though it's got it feels like it has everything on the table to be great. But maybe it's the Disney factor on it. I don't know. I, I, but... It's interesting because, yes, it's it was basically the first of what we can now consider these live action incidentally adaptations, too, whatever. But it feels paced like one. I mean, you know, obvious example, when you go back and watch the original Beauty and the Beast, you know, that's what, 77 minutes long? And it's freaking yeah. clockwork. Boom, 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 boom. There's not a false note. There's not an ounce of fat. And Be then you go guest, watch the line. Kill the beast. Be- yeah, those are <laughs> um, And then, you know, you obviously you watch the 130-minute live action adaptation, and it's, you know, it's It looks really pretty. It looks really pretty. <laughs> Looks really and pretty. Luke Evans is awesome. Yes. <laughs> Dan Stevens should have had practical makeup on. Even there though this yep. film is not excessively long, it's only about 110 minutes, it does feel padded as if it's a live action remake of a animated film that does not exist. Right. I will I will say what go ahead. No, I say which ironically, the last time I watched Pirates of the Caribbean, which I still like, that did feel like a live action Disney remake of some animated film that didn't exist yeah. in terms of how it's paced and the padding and the redundancy or turns the cave twice, yada, yada, yada. And, and you know what? It's something I noticed, you know, like I love going through this filmography, watching it. Tim Burton rarely makes a film that goes over two hours. Even when he's in the blockbuster realm and stuff, and like in areas where everyone else is making two and a half hour films, he's still clocking in between 110 to 
126. 125, 26. Yeah. Yeah. Even the Batman movies are barely over two hours. Yeah. His longest film, I believe, will be coming next week for us at two hours and 15 minutes. But everything else hangs around to like old school, like, hey, trim the fat, cut that. Like, uh, I don't know. Alice is too short to How even long continue. Was Todd? Huh? It's, it's only two. two it's yeah. It's, only it's, two, it's over. Like... It's it's uh. Sweet. They cut a lot of songs. <laughs> yeah, they did cut. They cut a lot of songs. Two hour, one hour, fifty six minutes for okay. Sweeney Todd. It's not quite as bad as you know Chris Columbus's Rent. No, the backmark songs. They're on the DVD. I know you shot them. It's yeah. an inside joke. <laughs> his longest. Oh wait, what was his long? Like I think it might be. Uh, Miss. Peregrine might be his longest one at two hours know. and seven, two hours that and seven minutes. Surprise me. Yeah. Uh, I know Dumbo wasn't super long. Nope. Dumbo's only in the two hour, uh, just shy of two hours. Like every, he clocks in there. He doesn't make you stay too long. He knows the trailers are going to take up about 30 to 40 minutes of your time at the theater. So he compensates for that. I think it helps that he doesn't particularly uh, like doing action. So he doesn't have, you know, good 20, 30 minute action set pieces. True. True. Uh, and I do think that is one reason why a lot of action films feel longer because you have stereo, you know, simplistically speaking, you have, instead of having action scenes that were the length of an American Jackie Chan movie, you have action scenes that are length of a, you know, Chinese or Korean Jack or Hong Kong Jackie Chan. movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, um, anyway, so Alice, Al- yeah, like, yeah, you want to, you, you hope it's better. Uh, and you hope you, every, when you go back to it, it's better, but it's the same. Uh, about every time uh but i will say despite our thoughts and conventional wisdom uh, or twitter wisdom or whatever social media wisdom this movie got an a minus cinema score uh people love this movie uh the general audience did critically it was middle of the pack it was not mm-hmm. it was not like just derided uh though its reputation would have you thinking it's some atrocity and huge you know when they call those billion dollar movies a bomb. I think it won like two Academy the last Awards Airbender, as well. which is also terrible. I think divorced from our personal feelings with from the people that directed it, mm-hmm. it's like yeah, this stinks, but whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, it won two Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, one for art direction, one from costume design, which have no weight on the quality of the film <laughs> story and stuff itself. Um, but it. Yeah, it, it opened with $116 million, which was the biggest opening ever for a non-sequel original picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it legged out to 334 domestic. Um, this despite, or relevant regardless, you know, there was a controversy at the time because Disney wanted to have the film out on DVD in, a, in only 90 days. Uh, but of course the film was a huge smash anyway so it's beside the point it was the fifth or the, excuse me the sixth film to cross a billion dollars worldwide uh following avatar dark knight pirates 2 return of the king and uh titanic it would be followed that year by toy story 3 in summer 2010 and this would sort of be the start of the whole where you had 3d upcharges overseas mm-hmm. expansion yep. including but not entirely china where you had a which started a run of billion dollar grocers something that used to be relatively you know almost non-existent started becoming par for the course in 2010 2011 2012 and then there's a little bit of a break we have like two in 2013 one in 2014 and then 2015 onward boom you're off to the races 
Definitely. Um, I wanted to like jump in and kind of talk to oh God, yes. the social media clout of this film mm-hmm. during social media's early days, because like not just from a merchandising standpoint, because it was just super merchandisable. You know, I remember like there was a giant, you know, Mad Hatter hat that was either at Disneyland or at Hot Topic that like, everyone was trying to buy, like the early Disney parks, like merchandising battle days. And then um, as someone who was like very into Tumblr and um, into cosplay, like it just took over, like folks were you know cosplay started becoming a thing because people started making those costumes be making their own versions of the costumes and the early like sort of disney um cosplay community days and music videos inspired by alice in wonderland even um and then tumblr just having just all the imagery like that film generated so much online that it makes sense as to even though you know we would feel that this movie was definitely tedious i don't even know if people were watching it for the story they were watching it for <laughs> just you know like visual vibes and aesthetic right were people, no, were people using recreational drugs and watching the film that's been a tradition with alice in wonderland oh for oh, sure God, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> i didn't even think of that yeah the movie's about taking recreational <laughs> drugs <laughs> i mean the, well the <laughs> cartoon was very heavily Yep. It's not story. about the story, man. It's about the journey. <laughs> it's about the vibe. About like, the speaking vibe. of which, I like mean, when the caterpillar takes the hit, that's what that's your cue to re-up yourself <laughs> as you're going. And I do think the film's release was a kind of a g- generational thing. Like again, where you had the generation of people who were kids. We, you know, in the first generation of Tim Burton films, were now old enough to take their kids to this picture. And after, you know, 15 years earlier, almost 20 years earlier, where you had everyone losing their minds over the violence and scariness of Batman Returns and the fear that they would lose their minds over the violence and scariness of A Nightmare Before Christmas, you have this PG rated film with severed heads, scorched bodies, and all kinds of, you know, violence that probably should have gotten a PG 13. But and I'm not saying there's a criticism, kids, you know, the fact that it didn't probably made it cooler among kids because they think they're getting away with something. Right. But um, you know, bright and colorful. And so you know, this is a film where, where, you know, Alice steps over an entire river filled with severed heads and nobody cared. Right. Cool. Nifty. That's progress. It is progress. Um, do you have any more on Alice in Wonderland? Anybody? No? All right. Well, we will move on now to Dark Shadows. The legend of the vampire has been told for centuries, but never before like this. Oh, my dear. That's my scent offended thee. From the mind of Tim Burton. What is the year, future dweller? 1972. My God. Johnny Depp. Are you stoned or something? They tried stoning me, my dear. It did not work. Dark Shadows. Experience it in IMAX May 11th. This one was written by Seth Graham Smith from a story by John August based on the television series by Dan Curtis. It stars Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, returning to work with Tim Burton again. Uh, he, he discovers Eva Green here. Uh, Helena Byron Carter, Jackie Earl Haley, Johnny Lee Miller, Bella Heathcote, Chloe Grace Moritz, Gulliver McGrath, Christopher Lee, and Alice Cooper. Um, This is the adaptation of the very vampire-centric soap opera from the 1960s and 70s. 
um, that is uh, comes back here at the height of the Twilight franchise. So I wonder if that kind of got a move on things happening here. Scott shakes his head. I yes. Think so. <laughs> uh, this, as I mentioned before, I think I'm pretty sure this is the pinpoint of the why does he always have to cast Johnny Depp? That thing begins to take a hold. Um, everything else had been met with excitement. I just, I, I uh, you know, of course he's going to play Barnabas. Um, but this, it, it's not that way though. This was a Johnny Depp project that he convinced Burton to come on. So it wasn't that way. This is in reverse. Um, this was a, uh, a project that he was very invested in. He was giant up like dark shadows. The opportunity came to make it. He convinced Tim Burton to come do it for everybody. So it is a, this is why Johnny Depp's at the forefront of this movie. Not because Tim Burton cast him or because this was a Tim Burton movie he wanted to do. Um, so. Oops. I don't, I don't, I don't know if the, the finger pointing and the uh, disdain is coming from the right spot. Uh, but, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go, la- I'll, I'll, I'll go around here, but Sabina dark shadows. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of was thinking, is this like Johnny Depp's the monsters? You know, you have this show that folks have a lot of nostalgia for that. They're trying to recapture the essence of what made it, you know, beloved. I guess in a sense, I did not watch Dark Shadows growing up. I did watch reruns of like the Adams and the Monsters. So mm-hmm. I can kind of compare, but it never seemed to be on that level, at least to me. Um, but yeah, like the, I just thought it was a serviceable movie. There were some really great performances. Ava Green was great. You know, she was chewing the scenery and like pretty much outacted Johnny in this. <laughs> you know, if, if, because she was a far more interesting villain than he was as Barnabas as like an anti-hero sort of person mm-hmm. for sure. I, One of my big problems with this picture, it's a movie. So you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. And, you know, I, you know, I believe that ET could fly. I believe that Steve Rogers can take a super serum and come captain America. I believe that whatever the hell is going on in star Wars, that's fine. But this is a film that expects me to believe that the hero is in conflict because Eva Green wants to have sex with him. And he's like, no, (laughs) no, oh, God, no. And I'm sorry, my my suspension of disbelief cannot go that far. Cosign. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. so this one, like I watched Dark Shadows when I was a kid. I wasn't a kid in this, when it first aired, but uh, the Sci-Fi Channel used to run reruns of it in its early days around lunchtime for like two or three hours. And I would watch it there because my mom watched it. She was one of the kids. She was a teen at the height of Dark Shadows. So I would watch and she, oh, the, the old show. And I think, I think this ad- adapts it in a certain aspect where I think a lot of the, the dark shadows, super fandom takes their stuff very seriously, but it is really campy and cheesy. Like this one presents like 
and it always was. There was always that. It was a soap opera. It had the cheap, you know, sets that were always around. Some overacting, different weird characters, bizarre. I mean, this was a soap opera that wound up having vampires and then taking like time travel and all sorts of wacky, mad science stuff. And it was it's silly back then. Fun fact. Sometimes when I'm editing the show or writing, I put on Pluto's Dark Ch- Shadows channel and just let it ride in the background. It's a it's a fun romp. Um, and I think they have the right idea here. I think they know the material very well. But I think there's a lot of people that come into this that think like Rob Zombie's The Monsters just a little while back. They know what the monsters look like. They kind of have an idea of the monsters, but they never really watch the monsters to kind of get where some of the true to form stuff would come from. And they're like, what is this? It's like, eh, I don't know. I, I, I think I like this film more than most. I'm not like, oh, super fan of Dark Shadows. I think it's a lot better than it's given credit for. I think it's a beautiful looking film. This is one of his best shot films for sure. And this is where I'm going to proclaim through this retrospective, I've learned Tim Burton is a master of the 185 frame, like an absolute master. Yep. And his things look larger than life. They look gorgeous. He captures a 70s vibe effortlessly that people struggle with and overdo. And he's got this naturalistic feel to it that both evokes the television series, what the television series wants to be doing back then and what the time period is here. Um, the house that he's stuck filming in for a lot of this because it's got that soap opera nature. He makes it interesting from a lot of corners because there's a lot of conversation going on in this. Um, I was, yeah, I watched this before one time and I was like, eh, okay, Dark Shadows, the end. Uh, But going back through it for this, I really enjoyed it a lot more. Um, I don't think it's just a a skip over or a pass. I think there's a lot of value to it. it's nice seeing Michelle Pfeiffer back again, seeing she hasn't aged since Batman Returns when he last right. worked with her. <laughs> um, she is. She, well, see, there's a guy playing a vampire in this, and then she's the real vampire cast in the movie for not just her performance, but for, you know, a technical advice. <laughs> but yeah, I just remember like the ensemble being so much better than Johnny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, not well, you want a lot more of them. It, yeah. But this is a $150 million summer blockbuster where Johnny Depp's basically the only major male character. Yeah. Almost everyone else is women. Yeah, Jackie um, Hurley. I'm not saying it's side. Some, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying it's some giant feminist masterpiece. It's not. I mean, there's certainly a virgin horror dynamic between the, you know, uh Eva Green and Bella Hathcote, who's like 12 years old or something in the film. Mm-hmm. I, I saw it on, you know, before you know, press screening, didn't care much for it. I rewatched it just on a lark a couple years ago during lockdown. Um, and you know, I, I it certainly is paced and structured like a soap opera, right? And the fact that I'm not big on that means that you know, there's stuff that's not going to work for me. Uh, I do think, again, you're right. I think the big problem is that Johnny Depp just isn't gets outclassed by the entire cast, and whether that's just that he's more far school, everyone else is playing on a different level, I don't know, but. Um, and again, you know, jokes aside, the conflict is this 
you know, self-made woman that's keeping the entire town alive economically versus this aristocratic asshole that's been buried alive for 300 years and comes back from the dead and says, fuck you, that's mine now. And it's like, whose side are we supposed to be on here? <laughs> he wants exactly. to bring the old family business back um, that she yeah, bought out changed. and turned to hell. Yeah. So it, you know, it was him keeping the town alive before. Yeah. And then, you know, she has unrightfully taken it over. So that's kind of the the conflict of sorts. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very gorgeous looking seventy five million dollar movie that somehow cost one hundred and fifty. Um, mm-hmm. And that's you know it was not a success. I think it's like two seventy five worldwide, which is a disaster on that budget. But again, I, I don't know. It might just be that everyone got paid, you know, top dollar and yippee skippy for that. But it is certainly is a very expensive film, especially for one that's basically set in a single location. It's like, you know, what if Blue Mouse made a $170 million movie? Right, right, right. Um, but the, the special effects are very good. The production values are really solid, very well acted, very well cast. Everyone's having a good time. Um I think in retrospect, you know, I'm not going to say it's magically a good movie, but I think it's an interesting movie that just doesn't work for me. Gotcha. No, that's fair. That's totally fair. Um, I also, I think um, he's got great musical choices in here too. with like Nights in White Satin, Season of the Witch. Like that really plays into the cinematography for me. If I may slightly interject and then I'll let other people talk because I've been hogging and I apologize. My favorite part of this film is actually the opening credit sequence. Yeah, the train. It's another situation where it's, this is a Tim Burton movie that's set on Earth. That's so weird. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we, we were talking about Big Fish last week. Part of it, the reason it stood out is like that was like the first Tim Burton film ever made. Is like this is set on Earth with <laughs> normal people in normal clothes of normal office buildings, <laughs> and the trees aren't alive. And you know, it's it's there's a little bit of that in this picture before it you know somewhat gets more uh, you know, uh, exaggerated. Um, but you know, I remember being weirdly excited about the first five, you know, the opening credit sequence where it's just a young woman sitting, listening to a normal song, driving down a normal road. Mm-hmm. And- it's the 200th film appearance of Christopher Lee in a live action movie, his last in a Burton movie and his fifth collaboration with him at this point. So, and if they hadn't gone and remade done the Hobbit again, Burton would have had the last Christopher Lee movie as well as the last Vincent Price movie. True. Foiled again. Um, <laughs> and this, this movie did, you were talking about the box office. This did come during the Avengers run at the box office. This opened so, on an infamously bad weekend for Warner brothers. Right. Warner brothers has this weird history of opening very expensive movies on the second weekend of summer and get just getting trounced by whatever the big summer kickoff movie is. Um, you know, Battlefield Earth a week after Gladiator, Speed Racer, rest in peace, a week after Iron Man. I know mm-hmm. it still hurts. Yeah. Um <laughs> but we have Iron it. Man. That's what matters. We have what it. What was that? We have we it. Have it. <laughs> That's yeah, what matters. Yeah. Only they hadn't released Mario Kurt Wii in the same week. Um Sorry, inside joke. Um, <laughs> and you know, King Arthur and the Legend of the Sword, a weekend after Guardians mm-hmm. of the Galaxy Volume Two. Poseidon in 2006 after Mission Impossible 3. The only now, thing to the, buck the trend was uh, Abrams Star Trek 2009. That, that was, was the first That was one not that, Warner Brothers. Was, well, it was, was Warner Brothers, but that but second, there are, there weekend, that second yes. weekend was there are a three disaster. Exceptions. Yeah. Because Wolverine was so freaking terrible. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing is that they did open Troy to $44 million in 2004, but what was the big summer kickoff movie, Van Helsing, mm-hmm. which again, not a good movie, all due respect. With Hugh Jackman. I generally love Stephen Summers, but you know, you can't win them all. And of course, The Great Gatsby, which was sold as an event film for stereotypically for women and adults and people that weren't necessarily interested in the new you know, Iron Man movie. Um, gotcha. And that proved that, dear God, Theodore DiCaprio is the last movie star we've got, mm-hmm. along with Sandra Bullock. Awesome. But yeah, uh, one, one big thing, to, yeah, as, as Sabina pointed out, right front, Eva Green, if you're curious about Dark Shadows, that'll give you enough to be like, that was awesome to see. Makes a great double bill with 300 Rides of an Empire for reasons. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, yeah. uh, So we'll move on to our final film in the same year as Dark Shadows. Frank and Weenie again. When Victor lost his best friend. Sparky was a great dog. He discovered a shocking solution. I can't believe it! Your dog is alive! On October 5th... Victor brought an animal back to life? Everyone wants in. We can do better. On the adventure... Ah! From Tim Burton... I need your help. My problem, bigger. Yeah, he's right. Frankenweenie. I can fix that. Rated PG in 3D. Written by John August, based on an original idea by Tim Burton and the 1984 Leonard Rips screenplay. Starring Winona Ryder, she's back. Catherine O'Hara, she's back. Martin Short, Martin Landau, look at him, he's back. Uh, Charlie Tahan, Atticus Schaefer, Robert Caprin, James Hiroki, Leah Conchata Farrell, Tom Kenny, D. Bradley Baker, Frank Walker, and the beloved Christopher Lee one last time. When a boy's beloved dog passes away suddenly, he attempts to bring the animal back to life through a powerful science experiment. This time... Feature length. Sabina, tell me about Frank and Weenie. Frank and Weenie was one of the first Tim Burton films I covered. Um, and that was, you know, as someone who grew grown up watching a lot of the shorts like Vincent and like the original like live action version of Frank and Weenie, I was very excited for it and nervous. Um, but also, you know, like because it just seemed like a really ambitious premise to um, sell to kids, you know, with like the choices that were being made, like with um, having it be in black and white and um, like a very out there concept on an IP that, you know, hadn't at the, at that time, I don't think had any recent adaptations. I think that they did Frank and Winnie predate like, I Frankenstein and like all of those. Oh, um, you mean that? So yeah, when did I Frankenstein come out? I remember, yeah, because there was like, but I Frankenstein, Dracula Untold. Mm-hmm. Um, so I Frankenstein was 2014. So yes, it did. Yeah. So like, there was I think nothing for you know kids to kind of like really gravitate toward it which as i mean i i would be the sort of parent that would introduce kids to frankenstein early on so it felt like a very niche Mm -hmm. decision um and you know like uh i i thought it was very solid i i I, but i I don't know if i'm in a majority here (laughs) in that regard (laughs) Mm -hmm. no i i like i like the the frank and weedy it's um a nice, a very nice expansion upon uh, the original short that, 
you know, could have gone one way, but he's able to, you know, do things he couldn't before uh, because, you know, yeah. he's animating it. So he's able to make the characters look a little more uh, Burton-y. He's able to add some touches here and there. It's got the same core story through yeah, and through. Yeah, like it's pretty and much it, like the same beats and yeah. everything. Yeah. And yet still moves at the same pace, even though. So because it doesn't like take forever and i really like the the sort of additions and and stuff to it uh but i feel it's more or less the the, the frank and weenie he kind of wants to make um rather than what he can make with what they have um uh, and yeah it, it's an I, I i like all his little animated stop motion films they're they're wonderful. like from vincent to this um they're pretty wonderful they're pretty pretty great um and yeah, it's it's amazing how like like I said, the same story comes through with the same beats, but it's somehow longer. Doesn't feel that much longer. It's 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 really bizarre. Scott, what do you think of the, the Frank and Weenie when you have your microphone come down? Yeah, oh, sorry, me? I've been doing that all day. I apologize. Yep. Um, I like it. I think it's a solid expansion of his original short. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically him doing whatever the hell he wants because he has nothing left to prove, blah, blah, blah. And obviously there's a certain karmic sweet revenge in terms of, you know, making this featured late movie for Disney, the same, basically the same movie that got him fired from Disney, mm-hmm. you know, 20 some years ago. But there's no maliciousness <laughs> in the film. It's very sweet. It's very, I remember in 2012 when it came out, you know, I was pleased by how pro-science it was. Because even then we were starting to see sort of, well, obviously, the Tea Party had been a thing for two years, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but there was a certain return of the anti-intellectualism with an even more of a nasty streak that we had seen in the Bush years. Um, and, you know, this film this film came out in, I think, September of 2012, and it was right alongside two other horror films for kids that were themselves screeds about the perils of fear and panic and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Hotel Transylvania, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah is actually a catchphrase. Um, uh. And Paranorman, which mm-hmm. I think Paranorman is the best horror movie ever made for kids. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. And it's certainly up there. Well, that, um, yeah, that and Coraline, you could argue yeah. that one, too. They're both fantastic. Um, and again, it's it's a film that I don't know how prescient it was trying to be when it was made. When it was just a, you know, a good, thoughtful horror film for kids. Same thing with the box trolls. Unfortunately, like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a lighter movie. It's just a parable for the rides of Nazism after World War One. That won't possibly be timely in 2014. Uh, fuck. <laughs> um, oh, I miss the days when I complained that the Captain America: The Winter Soldier was unrealistic because of the second half where it turns out all the people are secret Nazis. Oh, yeah. 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 Those are the the days. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Oh God. Anyway, uh, I like the film quite a bit. I think it's fun. I think it gets the job done. Um, And I don't have a lot of deep thoughts about it other than that. I I think it's, it's, it's what you see is what you get, but what you get is very entertaining, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And obviously I'm constantly in awe over the mere notion of clay claymation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I just, that's why I like yes, is my favorite, all like of, is my favorite animation yeah, studio. All of it is hard work. All of it takes talent and time and patience and all of that jazz. But the, 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 the way that stop motion animation films are made, it just, it blows my mind in terms of the, the skill like and, 
the patience. Yeah, yeah just, do you tell like that? It's not just one storyteller; it's many storytellers because yeah. from the lighting to the textures to the fabric on the clothes to the movement, every little detail like just has to all come together in ways that CG doesn't. <laughs> For me personally, yeah, it's, just, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's you know again, I I, I yeah. know it's cool to you know knock on CGI as this you know the enemy of cinema or whatever, and I uh, it's all <laughs> while the people doing it are severely underpaid and overworked, and we're like yeah, well, that too, <laughs> that too. But yeah. I mean, you know, it's all hard work. It's all incredibly you know whatever. But me personally, and maybe because it's just tangible, the idea of having to set up this entire scene, click, set up the entire scene all over again click yeah just well and you you have i mean like sidebar Gwendolyn wild was conceived like right like predates a lot of it predates jordan peele as a horror master essentially you know yeah Yeah. and it just came out what'd you say scott i I haven't watched it yet because i really want to watch it and i want to actually sit and take the time and actually sit and pay attention to it Mm -hmm. as opposed to most netflix movies where you can watch while you're doing the dishes um <laughs> uh no yeah this like the stop motion thing because you have people you have people just that are you know, like you said to be you got the people in charge of the sets you got the people in charge of the props you got the people in charge of clothes you have people who are just in charge of moving a certain character and then you have you separate out that out through certain scenes that are getting done at the same time to say it's it's a it's a whole process but the, i think the the idea the end of the day we like is tangible stuff in film we like practical yes. gore effects we like stop motion because we like hand-drawn stuff because we we feel like a person is it takes a lot of time and there's a something being touched in the process to it rather than just the computer which i always talk about like how i used to you know i grew up loving movies and getting into it because of movie magic because I'm like how they do that and then you watch like they you know, like 20 people put this all together just to make this like puppet guy go ah. And then now it's just like, well, here's our row of people at computers. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. But I do like the digital when I didn't even know. You know, well, when, I think that's part of it is we like the idea of being yeah. able to believe our eyes. You and know, I tell and you I'm what, not... they should have never told us about the goddamn volume on Star Wars. Or <laughs> now you, you can tell. Like you're like, yeah. oh, I I that's that's a volume. That's a volume. Before I just I, I was able to lose myself and be like, man, they they really did a good thing. Yeah, with this. even now, the Batman, which my issues nitpicks with that film, I think it's a very good use of that technology mm-hmm. because I know it's there. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's probably yeah. They're they're just yeah. doing a stage play in front of a green screen, but but it's they'll they'll continue screen. to get better and better at that yeah. too. So get until right. uh, Ang Lee and James Cameron take a crack at it, then it'll blow our minds. Yeah, Ang Lee's ten thousand frames a second. Yeah, I'm gonna take. Well, James Cameron was like, "I'm gonna take you to space, shoot you in space, and then we're just gonna do it in the volume too." So that's what we'll, <laughs> that's what we will that's what we will do. Um, I hope he shoots Avatar five in space. Oh, jeez, no sin. I, I never bet against James Cameron, though. Nope. Nope. No. Nope. Nope. Something. <laughs> It'll be him and Tom Cruise in the Hollywood space race. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite literally, if he's actually doing that thing for Universal. Yeah, coming soon, Avatar, oh. The Way of the Stars. Oh, hell no. <laughs> he's going to do it. He's going to do it. So, mm. yeah. But no, uh, Frank Weedy, Scott, how did that box office do for it? I forgot to look that up. Uh, quick distraction. Scott's <laughs> looking it up. 
Scott's looking it up. Scott's looking up. This is that point where people get annoyed. Like, I didn't have it ready. Unless I edit it out. Did I edit it out, listener? You tell me on Twitter or Hive or wherever you're at now. Uh, Opened with $11.4 million and legged out to 35 and change. Made $84 million worldwide on a 39 budget. So it wasn't a particularly big hit. Um, and again, it opened up again, you know, alongside Barrett Norman and Hotel Transylvania, which was a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It spawned, you know, that was a hugely successful franchise. And, you know, even as someone that isn't huge on most zany Adam Sandler comedies, I quite like the first two Ad- uh, Hotel uh, Transylvania oh, for sure. pictures. So good. The second yeah. one's terrific. And the, <laughs> the third one is trash. Oh, dear. no, no, no. The fourth one is. Didn't uh, get that far because I saw the third one. Good for you. You were smarter than me. My kids somehow. Well, because the fourth one they took and we we're like, eh, we're going to pull it from theaters and we'll put it to Amazon. Eh, well, I don't know what like, we're doing. Oh, that's why. And my kids forgot about it because they watch nothing on Amazon. So that's fair. I like uh, that. But no, it's it's the last. The last. The third one is mediocre. The fourth one is just abysmal. Gotcha. Which to be fair, I mean, most of the people didn't. Most of the key filmmakers did not come back. So mm-hmm. whatever. You don't do Transylvania without the Sandman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Mr. Samurai Jack. Yeah. So. <laughs> but yeah. So. Um, but yeah, it was not a huge hit, but whatever. You know, did, did, you know they you made a billion dollars off Alice in Wonderland. So at least you, and you basically jumpstarted the, one of the few subgenres of keeping Disney theatrical alive these days. It's the least you can do. Right. Right. And they wanted him to make this, though. He was, it was not his idea. So, yeah. It's not like he brought this to them and failed. Like he brought it to him last time and it didn't do well. They brought it to him this time and it didn't do well. So, like Eisner is on a, like, you let who in to do what? Okay. Whatever. Sure. Not my company anymore. Gotcha. But, uh, so next time we'll do, uh, there will be big eyes. Him going for something a little smaller scale. Um, then he'll do his own take on the X Men and another <laughs> another Disney live action redo. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's when I came out. I was like, I'm excited for this oh, movie yeah, because I, it looks like I Tim Burton's X Men, and that's forgot. a great idea. That's a great idea. Uh, but yeah, so that'll do it for this uh, sixth part in this series. Um, I was very, I'm very excited and happy to have Sabina back on the show. It's been a bit. It's I time know. just goes right by. Um, but in the interim, I had your husband on and he was wonderful. So oh, great. Uh, but um, so, uh, in the meantime, where can people keep up with you? Oh my goodness, these days with uh, Twitter maybe going away. If, if you're still on there, I'm hanging on. That's why I, I tend to share all my journalism. And that is Twitter at Sabina has no R. I just hopped over to the hive and uh, same at Sabina has no R. And over on Instagram at Going Cool Places, that's where you can find me on social media. As far as my writing goes, I'm currently writing for io9, and I cover a lot of genre, like very, very niche sci-fi, horror, uh, family movies. Uh, I think the next film I'm reviewing, oh, wait, I don't know when this is going out. <laughs> um, this will be in December, like sometime here. Yeah. <laughs> 
another Disney movie here. Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler, um, Piss and Boots 2 is awesome. Yes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's awesome. Oh my gosh. But yeah, so you can find me on io9 and I, I write about film and streaming shows and themed entertainment. So that means theme parks, uh, immersive experiences like the Stranger Things experience, which I recently went to and it was great. And Meow Wolf. Gotcha. All right. Um, and Scott? Um... I'm an old man, so I'm not juggling various social media things. I don't know where the cool kids are going. All I know is if if you're on Twitter, stay on Twitter. Stay alive. I will find you. <laughs> anyway, I'm at Twitter. Uh, definitely my Facebook, too. That's mostly just for cat pictures and stuff and kid pictures, but, you know, priorities. Um, I am at The Wrap. That's my new home for the moment. Um, and that's basically it. Awesome. Uh, I'm still on Twitter uh, and Instagram at brand4kuhd. I'll just be on Twitter. Um, I'm on I'm on Mastodon now. I went there, but I think that's already done. Like, I, I don't think people are going to do that. Now. Like, it was like where people were going for like a day. I was like, I might as well open one up here. And I got very confused as an older gentleman trying to figure out, like, what server I want to be on. What the hell is this? What server am I supposed to be on? So I went on Mastodon, and then then everybody was like, Hive, and I'm like, yeah. I followed all the Star Wars people onto Hive. I think one of my good friends, Katrina, was like, all of us are, you know, one one way out. (laughs) We're going to Hive. Well, we're going to hive, but we're still checking Twitter like mad people. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We're like, you know, so I'm going to come. come I think Twitter, I'm hoping by the time this airs, we'll have some vague idea of a of which one did came Twitter out on survive, top? Yeah. or b which one which one of these new ones turned out to be Blu-ray and which one turned out to be HD DVD. Which one? Had, <laughs> which one was was led by somebody who was a completely awful person, but would just look cool to jump to right away? But I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think here's the thing. I don't think Twitter, Twitter is just people like I think talking about it dying. So they hope it dies, but it's not going to die because some asshole is always going to work for another asshole. That's the sad, sad truth of it. Someone's going to uh, always when everybody goes, someone's always going to step and go, OK, I'll do it. So I hope it doesn't die. I mean, obviously, I, I have misgivings about its cultural impact and all that jazz, but it is the easiest social media platform yeah. for just talking and spreading the word. Everything else sort of does is almost like a, a demo reel. However, that makes sense. However, it's been proven it's one of the lowest traffic ones to send to your places. Oh, absolutely. That is true. Like, yeah. Yeah. So if, when, when we're all um, like, oh, I like your work, you're not fucking clicking it. I know you're not. <laughs> Seven percent of people follow on with the links or whatever you're sending, and blah 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 blah. But I do read people like Sabina has great and/or reviews. I have read a couple of them. I believe you've you've covered that, right? I'm not. It's not someone else. Yes, yeah, me. <laughs> so I have. Yes. Um. But yeah. So I don't know. Who Stone knows? Skarsgård going for that Emmy. If you're listening to this after like there's no more social medias, they all went away. And we're still talking about the past. I don't know. But yeah, so yeah, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I've written work at whysoblue.com. Um, remember what I was like to future Brandon hopefully gets that Sony Pictures classic set. Well, this is going to talk about past Brandon. He got it and all the reviews are up. Go read them. It's a cool box set. Um, I can't believe Darth Maul was in the season finale of Andor. Yeah, that was wild. Um, uh, Rogu so- came in out of nowhere. 
Grogu, <laughs> Kira. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Um, somehow they all returned. Um somehow so what, Bob Iger has <laughs> returned. Well, this gets too crazy. Wednesday, old space shows here with another Night Rider adventure. And then next Monday, come on back. Uh, the seventh and final retrospective portion of this Tim Retrospective series is here. And then, uh, yeah, till then, stay phone positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at BrandonPetersShow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.